Five Star Insights with Arti Halai. Welcome to Five Star Insights with Arti Halai, where we speak to people from a wide range of backgrounds and sectors, all of whom are making a real difference in society. I'll introduce each guest with a short summary about their achievements before we dive straight into finding out more about the individual through their five choices of a location, cuisine, music, literature, and art. So sit back and enjoy. My guest on Five Star Insights is Sonia Sapri, a multi-award-winning independent dance artist, choreographer, teacher, and director at Sonia Sapri Company. With a strong foundation in Kathak, Sonia explores traditional and contemporary approaches, pushing the boundaries and using Eastern and Western influences in her approach. Career highlights include launching Sonia Sabri Company with a pioneering digital music and dance production called Drishti, performing at WOMAD, choreographing on campus for the Cultural Olympiad in 2012, and training library workers to use the toolkit of Qatar to illustrate stories for young families whose first language is not English. Biggest lessons learned include if you need to get things done, initiate it yourself and be self-reliant, be well-informed and be grateful. Sonia, welcome to Five Star Insights. It's an honour to have you on the programme. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to start with art, which seems like the obvious place to start, given that you're a dancer and uh, dance is such an expression of it. But you say you can see dance and movement in everything. What do you mean by that? Movement has been the way to confront my fears, the way that I learn to understand things that sometimes I, I struggle with, you know, through words. So I guess I'm just drawn to anything that has movement, that has shape, fluidity and structure, stillness and some kind of pulsation. And whether that's movement, whether that's color, whether that's kind of a brush stroke, I'm just drawn to, do, to those things and nature. But also I would say my training in Gatak, the art form, guides you to notice nature because if you do not understand the principles of nature you cannot do Kathak. And Kathak originated from northern India by traveling bards or storytellers. It is very much about telling stories using dance. How would you describe it to somebody who's not familiar with what it's about and what it looks like on stage? So Kathak has two aspects. There is the storytelling where we have gesture and mime, uh, body language to express thought. And it's basically mannerisms that we have as people because Kathak is the most naturalistic dance style. So the Kathak vocabulary for storytelling actually comes from the way we move. So like you and I are now chatting, you know, using hands, using our eyes and how we tilt our head and how we might have a deflection in the spine. These are all ways of expression. And as we know about uh, how science also reads expression when they study psychology, psychologists, psychotherapists, they all study the body movement rather than what's being said, because we give a lot through our body movements, through our eyes, through our gestures. So we're, we're basically codifying or stylizing to a certain extent. 
And then there's the technical side, lots of rhythm, lots of spins. It's very demanding, so it's quite virtuosic. Anyone who's seen flamenco or tap dance or uh, anything which is percussive, Gatek is a percussive dance form as well as the expression. So it's an all-rounded art form. And as Gatek artists, we're supposed to not only dance, but also sing, compose, paint, write poetry. I actually did not know that at all. So you are really educating me. Thank you. <laughs> what I do know is you do have to be very disciplined. It does take hours and hours of practice. And I'm wondering... As you were growing up in Birmingham, when you first had a desire to learn Kathak, there were enough dance instructors or venues around. My parents wanted me to be a Bollywood actress. And the only reason why that was because they come from a very working class family. And my parents saw Bollywood and thought, this is the measure of success. If you could get into film industry, you know, don't have to worry about money, don't have to worry about where you live, you know, so it's all the kind of the glamour. And that was the starting point. And then it was one of my friends at school who used to do Bharatanatyam. And that was, this is another form of classical dance, but from the south of India, and she used to go to the MAC, the Midlands Arts Centre in Edgbaston. So I think he got the timing wrong. So my dad took me to the class a bit early and the Kathak class was happening at the time. So he just kind of, you know, put me into the studio and spoke to the teacher, but didn't realize we were supposed to go to the other class, which was later. So it was what serendipity that I got into a Kathak class and I never looked back. And you stayed with it. Did you know from that younger age that you were always born to dance or was it just that the power of it grew more and more over the years? I was petrified on my teacher. It took time and a lot of confidence building for me to go into the studio and, and train. And then I was invited to my teacher's home to practice and take extra classes there. Remember, I'm probably six or seven at that time. I just felt like I was able to conquer the world as a child. You know, it was a big chance to feel something that I didn't feel outside of class. I would say I was about 12 when I realized this is all I want to do. I fell in love with it by the age of 12. It's not easy. It's a lifestyle. One has to mold their daily activity to serve the art. And that's what we're doing every day. The art form requires you to train. Even being a professional artist now for what, 15, 20 odd years, I still have to train three, four hours a day. So it's demanding. You, like I said, we're not, we don't do it, we're serving it. We're serving the art form. I want to move on then from the art to music. And of course, music and dance go hand in hand. Yes. But I want to just put aside for a moment the music that you use when you're performing and for your dance. You say music is very associated to your moods. So how are you feeling at the moment and what music would you be playing? Wow, uh, I would be playing Kavali right now. Kavali music is something I can't articulate in words. It's spiritual, it's from the Sufi lineage, it's choral, and there's lots of drumming and clapping. And it's just so energizing. It's like food for the soul. And I would urge anyone 
who hasn't listened to Ghazali to listen to it. The word I was going to use was hypnotizing. Absolutely. Your taste in music is actually very varied and global. So what other sorts of music and artists do you enjoy? So Michael Jackson <laughs> is a big one. I think probably because my mum is a big fan. And that was my first non-Indian kind of experience of music. And I like to listen to Indian classical, Hindustani classical music. Rashid Khan is a fantastic artist. Um, Farida Khanam and Begum Aftar, you know, the, the women who pioneered ghazal. Uh, in a very patriarchal society, um, and also Arabic music. I love Julia Boutros, who's a Lebanese artist. Um, so I'm really kind of into all of that. And Armenian music on Duduk, which is very soulful. So when feeling a little kind of melancholic, it really helps you to kind of, if you want to cry, it really helps you want to cry. Actually, a lot of people I know, if they're feeling low, might turn to music to lift their spirits a bit. You actually don't do that at all. You're the other end of the spectrum. And if you're feeling low, you're going to play music that accentuates that emotion. Why? For me, it's therapy and it's about accepting. There are emotions that we sometimes suppress because society teaches us not to show certain emotions because it's seen as weakness, it's seen as being vulnerable, where I think being visibly vulnerable is actually a strength. But I, I feel that we're here and we experience life and life teaches us to experience these emotions and we should not be afraid of them. So rather than kind of trying to escape from that and put something uplifting on just to kind of divert. I feel like I have to draw that emotion out. I have to pull it out of myself to the point where there is no more of that emotion. And then I start to feel better. So I think uh, music has been my kind of go-to when, when I just kind of need to let it, all, let it all out. Let's move on then to my third section and that is literature. And what types of books do you enjoy reading? So I like to learn about other people's lives. I like authors who are kind of maybe surgeons or travelers or mechanics or who have written about their experiences in their career. So one book I did read very recently was Fragile Lives by Stephen Westerby. And he is a famous, if not the pioneer of heart surgery. And he talks about, literally as the title is, how fragile our lives are. And it is a case of seconds. It's a case of having meticulous skill to save someone's life. And it made me think how we take things for granted so easily and how important it is to have people like heart surgeons in the world who are dedicating their whole life around the best technology, the best skill set to give to others to prevent death happening if it can be prevented. It's a very fine book and I would recommend it to everyone. And so that's the kind of thing I like to read because I think my world is so, so different. An artist's world is so consuming in a completely different way. Interestingly, a surgeon's life is also very much around precision, just like yours is as a Kathak dancer, I'm sure. Yes, yes. I guess there is that element of training and refining, analyzing, examining, which is so much about the Kathak technique as well. 
You and I share a lot of books in common. I too love books around human relationships, connection, culture, stories that have got lots of plots going through them. And these are fiction books. They are based in actual countries and places. So Khalid Husseini, I think, is an author whose work we really enjoy. A Thousand Splendid Sons, of course, and The Kite Runner. I was fortunate to see uh, A Thousand Splendid Sons at the Birmingham Repertory Theatre uh, a couple of years ago now. It was lovely to kind of see how the book was translated uh, onto stage. And it is about those lives, as you say, which we are so far removed from. And when we see media portray certain places, it gives only one perspective. So to hear the stories which are so from the gut of where these families are based. Sonia, I want to talk a little bit about, obviously fiction books have this ability to really lighten up our senses, just like Kathak does with storytelling. And you put that to really good use because you worked with 26 libraries. So just tell us more about that. The library workers would tell stories to, to children and a lot of the families were disengaged because they couldn't understand the English language. And on the other side, the library workers were saying, oh, we're really struggling to get people to take out books or uh, the literacy level at that time. The government had said it's gone down, so we need to improve that. So it kind of made sense to me to teach the library workers ways to make story time interesting. And Kathak literally means a storyteller because that's how the art form began. And so I took kind of ideas around the human emotions. There are so-called nine human emotions. And then we codified gestures and some games and, and creative tasks that they could get the whole uh, community involved. I had library workers from 26 different community libraries in Birmingham. Now that toolkit is with them and it's a national program. It's a digital uh, toolkit available to all libraries. And the reports that have come back to us where families have changed their outlook for libraries. That space has become creative. That space has become a place where they are inspired to pick up a book and read. It's just so admirable. And I'm so glad it's become a national program now. Coming on then to our fourth section, and that is cuisine. And you have memories from the age of three about what has become your favorite type of cuisine. Reveal all. So before this particular cuisine, I used to just live on chips and beans and, and simple food like roti and dal or roti and sabzi, or that was about it. I was a very fussy eater. My parents owned a corner shop and they used to work really hard. I mean, I, I used to kind of barely see my dad. Uh, even though he was just downstairs running the shop. I think 18 hours a day was his kind of shift. And my mum would be the one going down, helping him, then coming up, helping us with our homework or picking us up from school or dropping me into dance class. It was a very simple life, but a very hard one in terms that it was very demanding of my parents to run this shop. So I remember when they were talking about ordering something, but they were so excited and they were really kind of thinking about what they're going to order and when they should go and collect the takeaway. And it was Chinese food, it was Chinese takeaway. And I had a taste and I loved it. It was, 
amazing. It was so different to obviously what was being cooked at home. And it was my first delight in another <laughs> flavored food. And then my parents could see that I was really enjoying it. It became a thing. Every two months, they would order Chinese takeaway. They got to know the chef. And then it's really interesting because <laughs> they upped the ante and he made the Chinese food with an Indian level of spice. My dad said, oh, you know, put a little bit more garam masala here. Or, oh, you know, you need more, uh, you need more ginger in this bit. So it was like he modified the taste for this Chinese takeaway. And then, oh, oh yeah, this was another thing. Lots of other Indian customers started to go there. So I do wonder, did he like, you know, patent Indo-Chinese food? I don't know. <laughs> oh, um, lovely. And, and do you cook? Do you cook at home? I cook every day, if not twice a day. Um... I think it's important to have fresh food and, as I said, um, quite conscious because when you're a Kathak artist, you have to eat well. And my husband's a musician, so he's got to eat well. But what does the Kathak dancer eat? Good fat. We have a lot of rice, a lot of protein, but we try to mix it up with lots of salads and lots of kind of quinoa and bulgur wheat. And not just kind of staying with Indian food, but trying to kind of be more international. I've kind of done what my dad did. I Indian fried couscous. I have Indian fried bulgur wheat. <laughs> I think this is in our DNA. I mean, every Indian I meet does that. I mean, you know, that actually, this is the way it's got to taste. Yes, yes, there is a hierarchy in taste. <laughs> what is your guilty treat? Oh, I have it in my fridge right now. It's apple crumble and custard. I'm, I'm a chocolate girl through and through. <laughs> yeah, not so, yeah, not so much of a fan of uh, chocolate. Our final section then brings me to location. When you were touring, there was a country you said that was that was so special. So what was it? And why was it that special? Jordan. Jordan was a country... I, I had no expectations. I had no preconceived idea of what it was. I didn't even know where it was, actually. I didn't even know where it was on the map. And then when we arrived there, it just felt like I've been here before, or it felt like this is where I need to be. And I've never felt like that, even when we used to go to India when I was a child, or India now. And there was... Uh, a sense of tranquility. Although you had the hustle and bustle of those urban areas, there was this very profound tranquility and it just blew me away. I think it took me a few minutes to almost climatize to what this positive denseness was. And then we performed and we were very fortunate to have the Princess of Jordan come to that performance. And she was very, very complimentary. It was a fantastic performance. I think we had a standing ovation and it was a packed theatre. We lived the performance. What were you wearing? What was the set like? What was the production? The, the production was Gutter Box and it was one of our collaborative shows where we had hip-hop artists. We had a beatboxer, we had a contemporary dancer, an African contemporary dancer, myself. It was a show which was complete a cappella. This was our first ever production where we had no musical instruments. And it was about tick box culture. It was about how we stereotype people or cultures, but a really fun, fun, fun production. It was a high energy show. 
There's a section in the end of the show where we actually get the people, the audience to join in. And not just through clapping, but they have to say these syllables back at us. So there was this connection at the end of the show and they were all up on their feet. Even the princess of Jordan was up on her feet. So you can't ask for more, I think. Oh, wow. And I grew up in Birmingham, but family now live in Dubai. And there's such a contrast between the two places. Indeed. So Dubai is, oh, it's like a fairy tale or it's like living in a massive film set. I think people have different experiences of it. It can seem pretentious. It can seem arrogant. It can seem that it's all about the superficial and it's all about the materialistic, although the place also prides itself on spirituality. But I think it depends where you go, what people you are surrounded with. And yes, because my family there, my in-laws are there, you're kind of shielded from that and you do get a taste of the reality. But I find it replenishing for me because we are so involved in art and culture on this side of the world. Over there, art and culture doesn't really have a place. It's all about great food, enjoying the sunshine, looking your best, even if you're just going to pop out to get some bread. It's like I said, it's like a film set. So I think that massive contrast to my own life is that relief. It's a bit of respite. But then I can only be there for about 10, 14 days. After that, I need to get back. I want to end this section by asking you that if you could go anywhere in the world to perform, where would it be? Oh, um, maybe somewhere like Morocco, because it's, I've not been there, uh, but I hear that it's such a melting pot of cultures. And historically, it has such a confluence of different patronages of culture. And I'm intrigued how would a Catholic performance of mine be received there? And I'm always looking for collaborators. I'm so driven by collaborations because I love finding the common denominator because there is one in every artistic discipline. And it's like what you said, it's about the human experience. At the end of the day, we are all human and we all have experiences of life, but it's how we channel that through our art. And I'm really fascinated by that. So, you know, if there are any uh, collaborators in musicians, dancers, writers in Morocco, I think I would love to do a collaborative production there. Okay, you've put it out there. <laughs> and we'll make sure it gets out there too. Honestly, <laughs> unfortunately, time has caught up with us. I mean, I could spend all day talking to you and listening to you, projecting your energy and your art um, in the best way possible. Thank you so much for joining us on Five Star Insights. Thank you so much, Adi. Five Star Insights with Artie Halai.